you turn with me to John 15? John chapter 15, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 3. And I want to read some other scriptures to you as you're finding that text. The psalmist in Psalm 10 cries out very honestly, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Job, in the midst of his anguish of suffering, having lost his family, his possessions, and his health, he cursed the day of his birth. He said in Job 3.11, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? The prophet Elijah prayed for God to end his life. 1 Kings 19, the prophet Jonah prayed for God to end his life. Jonah chapter 4. The Apostle Paul was being tormented by what he called a thorn given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. In the 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. In Psalm 13, 1, the psalmist begged God to remember him. He said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, as those who follow God in Christ, you may at times succumb to the thought that God has turned on you, that he is against you, that he's not protecting you, or that maybe he's even acting like your enemy. And it feels at times like God doesn't play fair, like he does things that are beyond our ability to to grasp, as if he takes whatever your particular worst fear is and says, I think I'll just dump that situation on you. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel fair. And so you find yourself in that bind that Job speaks of in Job 9.33 that God is the one afflicting me, but God is the only one who can save me from God. And so he says in Job 9.33, I wish there was somebody to represent me. I need somebody to represent me to God to ask God to save me from God. And there's a bind And in Job 10, he begs with God. He reminds God how tiny and weak and insignificant Job is. He says, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? He's saying, you made me. I'm small. I'm frail. And now would you destroy that which you've made? Now, what were all of these people in Scripture undergoing? At one level or another, they were experiencing the discipline of God. And this was accompanied often by the sense that God had suddenly turned on them, that God was rejecting them now. The Lord's discipline is a fact. It may happen in seasons. It may feel more intense at some times than it does at others. But in reality, every single day has some sort of suffering or disappointment, right? God is continually training you, continually teaching you, continually molding you. Why does discipline happen? Well, let me give you two simple reasons. These aren't comprehensive, but I think they're important. Two simple reasons that discipline happens. First, it's to drive you to repentance from a wayward sinful tendency. To drive you to repentance. James chapter 5 presents the situation of a believer who's in some sort of rebellion, some sort of recalcitrant sin and has become physically ill as a result. And the promise that James makes is that repentance will lead to his restoration. And the fact it even relates the confession of sin to healing from whatever the malady the Lord had laid on this person. 
But all illness isn't necessarily because of unrepentant sin, which brings us to a second reason that discipline happens. Very simply, because you are a child of God in Christ. Because you're a child of God in Christ. The fact is that discipline of the Lord is a common experience for 100% of all who would claim to be in Christ. As a matter of fact, according to Hebrews 12, verse 6, this indicates that God loves you, that you belong to him. Verse 7 says God is treating you as sons. Verse 8 of Hebrews 12, if you are left without discipline, then you're illegitimate children. You're not children of God. The fatherly discipline of the Lord is not the experience of disobedient Christians. It is the experience and expectation of Christians, period. And this is our starting point here in our journey through John 15 and 16, what we're calling costly Christianity. Over the past two Sundays to introduce this text, we've tried to, first of all, debunk the the myth and the lie of easy believism, a gospel that says that intellectual belief in the forgiving power of Jesus Christ as Savior, that that alone is sufficient for salvation, and that's the basis for Christian assurance, that at one time, at one moment in time, you believe something, at least for a second, and no other evidence is necessary. And then last week, we looked at every single book of the New Testament, which says that the sign of a true believer is that a true believer incurs cost. There's a cost as a result of following Christ. There's the cost of repentance, the cost of self-mortification, the cost of pursuing holiness, the cost of suffering for the sake of Christ. And Jesus said it most succinctly in Luke fourteen thirty three: Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is the cost. We saw that biblical salvation is free from God because of Christ, but it costs you everything. That the true believer in Christ will be the one who takes up his cross, meaning you die to yourself. You follow after Christ. You've surrendered to the lordship of Christ. He is your master. He is your Lord. As we saw last week, he is your despot. He is the master. You are the slave. And so in John 15, right away, without any hesitation, Jesus puts at the top of his list of the costs of following him that you will be subject to the fatherly discipline of the Lord. And this is pictured in his little mini word picture as the idea of pruning. So let's look at these three verses together. Follow along with me in John 15. We'll read the first three verses. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And we'll just stop right there. This is an easily pictured scene. You have a vineyard with a vine, the main thick vine growing out of the the ground. You have a vine dresser, uh, a a gardener or the farmer, the, the caretaker of the vineyard. And in the vineyard, there are two types of branches. There are the fruitful branches, which get pruned back in order to produce even more fruit, and the unfruitful branches, which are gathered up. Now, we all want to be fruitful branches. We want to be true believers in Christ. But look what happens to the fruitful branches. There you are, just minding your own business, hanging out on the vine and enjoying the nice day. And you look down the row and you see the gardener coming, and these whistling a cheerful tune 
But you hear something else. You hear a metallic sound. Shing, shing, shing. And you look carefully and you see that he's sharpening his blade. And he's getting closer to you and closer to you. And the blade comes out and he makes eye contact or branch contact. And the blade comes toward you. And he cuts and it hurts. And you don't like it. He's pruning you. He's cutting you back. He's taking some of the greenest branches. Hey, I just grew that last week. And there it goes. Jesus said that God the Father is the gardener. And it's imperative that we have a proper view of the pruning work of the Lord. The trials, the suffering, the persecution, consequences for our own sinful actions, our own sinful words, which the gardener brings. Listen, it is a faulty theology which says that if you just have enough faith, then painful things won't happen. In other words, by faith you can keep the gardener away, or if we're going to be accurate, by faith you can keep God away. That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. It's a faulty theology. But the pruning of God does hurt. It it cuts. These are the cuts of his sanctifying work. They're painful. They hold dread and fear for us. And so rather than us praying as our instinct might tell us to for the gardener to stay away, let's talk about how to welcome the gardener. How do we welcome the gardener? Or we could put it this way, how to not miss the point of your discipline. Now, I know that every one of you can relate to this message. I love preaching things that I know hits every single person because every one of you is experiencing some sort of trial, pain, discomfort, or agony at some level. And if you're not, you will. Probably tomorrow, because we don't get many good days off on this. So when I say how not to miss the point of your discipline, I'm speaking to every one of us, myself included. So how can you welcome the gardener? How can you not miss the point of your discipline? Well, we want to do this by honestly evaluating your response to discipline by asking four questions. And we'll just use our text to help us in these questions. First question To welcome the gardener, are my eyes on Christ? Are my eyes on Christ? Jesus said, I am the true vine. This is the last of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. All of them, by the way, affirm the deity of Christ. He is the sole source of spiritual life because he is life. Now, the the vineyard and the vine metaphor. This This picture is laced all throughout scripture. It's a very popular picture and it's very tempting to make this symbol or any other symbol always mean the same thing every time but that's a little bit too easy there's definitely a majority use for the vine and the vineyard metaphor and that is referring to Israel it doesn't mean it refers to Israel ever every time but I want to just walk through with you and tell you some of the ways a vineyard is used or a vine in scripture in Isaiah 5 the vineyard is used of God's beloved nation of Israel Psalm 80 similarly speaks of Israel as a vine transplanted from Egypt and taken to the promised land to grow. Back in Isaiah 5, also in Jeremiah 2 and Hosea 10, Israel is now pictured as a vineyard that's turned bad, that's producing bad grapes. Vineyard imagery is also lengthened, extended out to speak of the judgment of God as God harvests the rebels of the earth and treads them in judgment. Revelation fourteen nineteen. so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. There are numerous Old Testament passages 
which picture judgment as being without your vineyard. In other words, being in a vineyard that, that doesn't work anymore, or maybe a vineyard that produces poisonous grapes. Zephaniah 1, Deuteronomy 32 speaks of this. The vineyard is also positively a sign of the restoration of Israel. That actual real vineyards will be one of the indicators that God has restored his covenant people who went astray for so many centuries. Amos chapter 9 speaks of these actual vineyards. We also see the vineyard as a symbol for the personal prosperity of all who would live in obedience to God in a God-ruled nation or a God-ruled world. 1 Kings 4, 2 Kings 18, Isaiah 36 speaks of every man living under his own vine, that there's prosperity, blessing from the Lord. The vineyard metaphor takes a little bit of a different turn in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is God's explanation of marital love and union. The vineyard here is, is used to speak coyly of the bride's body, It's also used to speak of the emotional and the spiritual unity of the couple. And the vineyard is also used to speak of their honeymoon location. So all kinds of uses of a vineyard in the Bible. But the most important one, the elevated one, the, the, the use of vineyard that we have to look at the most closely is here in John 15. The vine and the vineyard image is used to speak first of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and it's also used to speak of the qualification of entrance into the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom? You must be a branch attached to the vine. That's how you enter. So Jesus calls himself not just the vine but the true vine. Why does he call himself the true vine? Now there is a connection to the fact that Israel is so often referred to as as a vine or vineyard Under the old covenant, to be in faithful, right fellowship with God, you joined with Israel. But under the new covenant, to be in right fellowship with God, you must have faith in Israel's revealed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus is replacing Israel. That's not the idea here. The idea here is that Jesus is the consummation of what Israel was commissioned to do. What was Israel commissioned to do? Exodus 19, to show God to the world. And Jesus is the ultimate consummation of that. He is true in that he's the consummation also of all the symbols. Christ is what all the symbols point to. The tabernacle in the Old Testament pointed to a dwelling with God among men. Jesus is the Lord dwelling among men. The sacrifices pointed to the need for a permanent atonement. Jesus is that atonement. The priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, pointed to a need for a mediated relationship with God. Jesus is the mediator. He is the high priest. He's the final revelation. He's the completed revelation of all spiritual truth. He is the true vine. Now, to ask the question, are my eyes on Christ? We very often take this emotionally. Like, am I keeping focused on Christ so that I feel better about my trial or my discipline or my struggle. I think it goes far beyond that. It's about what a branch which claims to be part of the vine does to glorify the vine. Am I looking at myself or am I looking at Christ? Who is my focus? Hebrews 12 tells us how to keep our eyes on Christ when we suffer in some fashion. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're to consider him. This is a word that means to ponder or to reason to yourself. It can even mean to do a calculation of some sort. This isn't just looking to Jesus for emotional and spiritual strength, although that is an outcome. This is taking to heart that you're suffering as Christ suffered, that you're being like him. Basically, Hebrews 12.3 is saying, suffer with grace and dignity because you're part of the vine which suffered for you. There's an, there's an association there. Well, what's the alternative to keeping your eyes on Christ? There's only two choices. You can keep your eyes on Christ or you can keep your eyes on your circumstances, on that which is happening to you, analyzing the death, every bad thing that's happening, and immersing yourself in the pain. And deciding that if I just talk about this for enough hours with enough people over the period of enough weeks and months, that this will make me feel better. Now, we don't deny that the pain is real. We don't deny grief. We don't deny human agony and suffering. The loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, the the diagnosis of a terrible disease... The loss of a cherished relationship, these cause weeping and mourning and anguish, and this is very real. But what's the context of that pain? What's that pain set in? What's the story that it's in? The context, the bigger picture, is that while that's happening, you are in the vine. You are in Christ. We don't separate those. And you're being made into one who will glorify the vine. Listen. You'll never suffer more than Jesus did. You never will. You'll never have thousands of demons trying to come against you as happened to Jesus in Mark 5. You'll never be tempted by Satan himself to rule the entire world as Jesus was tempted in in Matthew 4. By the way, you would never stand up under that. If Satan offered you the chance to rule the whole world, you'd think about it for a millisecond and say, yep, I'm in. In all likelihood... You'll never have your beards plucked out, your backs whipped to a bloody pulp, nails driven into your wrists and feet, and put up on a cruel cross. And none of you who are in Christ will ever experience the awful, fearful, terrible wrath of God upon you for your sin that in some mysterious fashion Jesus took for every single person who would ever believe in him. And yet the Lord Jesus, our faithful vine, He bore the the unspeakable fury of God's righteous indignation and his punishment, pain and anguish, which should have been yours, should have been mine. And we can only describe that pain rightly by describing in terms of hell and torment of the rejection by God. So when you keep your eyes on Christ, you're considering him. You're calculating that you're in the vine. You read the Gospels. You read of the glorified Christ Jesus in Revelation. You calculate that your pruning will never amount to what Christ endured for you. You're in the true vine, and because of this, you live. When we receive the Lord's table together on a monthly basis as a church, we drink the fruit of the vine, symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for our sin, But isn't it also a wonderful reminder that we're attached to the vine? That we're attached to him when we drink the fruit of the vine that reminds us that we are in Christ. And so how do you welcome the gardener? How do you not miss the point of your discipline? First, are are my eyes on Christ? Is he my focus? Am I contemplating him? Am, am Am I thinking of him? Am I calculating that my suffering will never be as bad as his?
Here's a second question. Do I desire to adorn Christ? Do I desire to adorn Christ? And here comes the gardener, the heavenly father with his pruning knife. Verse one, my father is the vine dresser. You might ask questions like, why does the father discipline? Why must he inflict pain? Why can't my faith in Christ mean that I just float from one blessed miraculous day to the next? Well, there's some good and true answers to those questions we could ponder for just a moment. First of all, suffering strengthens your faith in the Lord. That's a basic idea. Suffering strengthens your faith in the Lord that as you suffer, you find your solace in the Lord alone. And you know this by experience that the things that used to give you comfort just don't work anymore. And it's whittled down to and you say, oh, now all I have is Christ. Aha, that was the point. Another reason we suffer, suffering reminds you to submit to the Lord. Reminds you to submit that as you suffer, now you're not just believing, but you're living Psalm 115 verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because at the darkest moments of your life, you don't possess any glory. You have none. Suffering also helps eradicate sin. It helps eradicate sin in your life more and more. It is the fire that burns the dross of sin. It's good for you. Another answer, suffering reorders your priorities into godly priorities. You know what suffering does? It murders idols. It takes away idols. As you suffer, you're less prone to pursue worthless things with your time and your talent and your treasure. And suffering sloughs off dead, idolatrous wishes and desires. Do you know what you call it when you reach a moment when none of your dreams will come true and you know it? That's called peace. That's called joy because now you're fully submitted to Christ. Many other reasons that the Lord disciplines, they're all good and true reasons. But the bigger reason The grander reason, the the more lofty reason above everything else, it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with the vine. Listen, why is the father the vine dresser? Why is he coming to prune you back? Because you're attached to the vine. The father's concern, the father's goal is that the vine be glorified and exalted and beautified. The father has said to the son in Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The father's desire to glorify the vine. It is the father's desire to exalt the vine. It is the father's desire to beautify the vine. And if you're a branch connected to the vine, then the father wants you to look like the vine. And you'll be fruitful, thus demonstrating the spiritual life of the vine which flows to you and through you. The Father's discipline isn't just about you. It's about making certain that the vine is adorned properly. Romans 8 tells us the point of our salvation from sin. It is not, as one educational psychologist writer I read this week, it is not to provide for your greatest needs of security. That's a byproduct, but that's not the point of salvation. Here's the point in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Your salvation is so that God can glorify Christ by creating from lost sinners, transformed souls who are now mirrors, countless millions of mirrors to accurately reflect the glory of Christ. That's what your salvation is about. 
Who's the focus of Romans 8, 29? Christ is. We're conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another from this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformed. We're being transformed. This is what's called a present passive verb. It means it's happening now and God is doing it to you. He's transforming you. And how is this happening? It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God continues to mold you and to make you. And in order to soften the clay of your soul, he breaks it and he kneads it and he tears it apart and puts it back together until it's soft. And the Father, through the Spirit of God, prunes you, literally in this text, from glory to glory. Why? So that you will properly adorn the vine. Does that make sense? Now, the Father's pruning of the vine branches is often drastic. With an actual grapevine, pruning involves removing dead or dying plant parts and or living, thriving parts of the plant. And there are several reasons. Some of you are, are farmers here. You understand this. You Remove the dead or dying or infested parts so that the rest of the plant can grow with more life. It also trains a plant to grow in a certain direction or shape. It improves the quality of what's left and what will grow after that. And if we took the grapevine analogy a little further, typical pruning on a grapevine takes off almost 90% of the previous year's growth. It's drastic. This isn't a little snip here and there. This isn't just a little minor surgery. This is major surgery. This is cutting everything off. And we've seen this right here in the valley. You've, you've driven through. You've seen the amazing, thick, lush vineyards. But when they're pruned, they just look embarrassed. They're just standing there. Please cover me. That's all they've got. You remember the days when we were green? And they're just standing there. But when the new growth comes back, what's it like? It's beautiful. It's lush. It's green. The life of the vine is now flowing into the new branches. And as you're made more like the vine, you know what Paul says you become? In 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says that you spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere you're becoming an accurate reflection of his glory, and that is only through pruning. Do I desire to adorn Christ? Will I view any suffering as God's means to beautify the vine? Am I willing to pray, Lord, whatever I'm suffering, would you use it to better reflect the glory of Christ to the world? How do you welcome the gardener, or how do you not miss the point of your discipline? First, are my eyes on Christ? Second, Do I desire to adorn Christ? Third question we could ask, am I joyful in Christ? Am I joyful in Christ? Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now we come to an interpretive crossroads. Who are the branches that do not bear fruit? You might notice that Jesus says these branches are in me. We'll deal with that in just a moment. The easy believism, free grace camp, which we have tried to expose in the last couple of weeks, it interprets the non-fruit-bearing branches as believers who are being ineffective to the Lord, consistently and rebelliously disobedient to the Lord. 
And Dr. Robert Wilkin, whom I mentioned a couple of weeks ago as really probably the leading proponent of the free grace movement today, he's written a commentary on John's gospel, and much of it is very, very helpful, and I enjoyed the parts that I've read. And when he comes to John 15, 2, he maintains that the verb translated here, he takes away, can also be translated, he lifts up, the idea of picking up the branches. And this is true. That is an accurate rendering of the Greek. But Wilkin then interprets this picking up, this lifting up in a wild stretch of hermeneutics and Bible study methods to mean that unfruitful believers are taken home to heaven. And he says the the farming practices tell us this, that if you prop up low-lying branches, if you pick them up, they become productive. Well, killing the so-called unfruitful believer doesn't make him fruitful, so that illustration falls short. But all you have to do is look down a few verses to see what happens to the unfruitful branches. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The easy believism camp maintains that this is speaking of God's discipline of the so-called unfruitful believer up to and including death. Now, we would agree that God disciplines Christians up to and including death. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us this, but not from this text. Not from this text. What's the picture Jesus uses of this gathering of the fruitless branches? They're burned in the fire. Can the fire simply be the death of a Christian? No, it cannot. We simply submit to Scripture's self-interpretation. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is saying the same thing. In fact, he's using almost exactly the same word picture, the same metaphor. He says in Matthew 3, verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Same metaphor, same situation. So what happens to those who are thrown in the fire? Does this simply speak of Christian death? Two verses later, speaking of Christ Jesus himself, John the Baptist says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Can the death of an unfruitful Christian be thought of as unquenchable fire? Obviously not. The New Testament clearly and repeatedly defines this as the fires of hell, the lake of fire, which burns forever. And listen, remember, this is all about the glory and the beauty of the vine, right? If a branch that bears no fruit whatsoever can be considered part of the vine, then this calls into question the life-giving power of the vine. Why couldn't this vine produce fruit in this particular branch? The vine could not give life to one of its own branches. And now we're calling into question the credentials and the power of Jesus Christ that if the Son of God cannot transform someone into his own image, if the vine cannot produce fruit in the branch which truly belongs to it, then the vine has gone bad. And now you're getting into the realm of denigrating the deity of Christ. And we won't go there. So how are we to understand every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away? Well, you can't make the little phrase in me carry a theological load that it wasn't designed to carry. That's like putting a ton of bricks on a tricycle. It's not meant to do that. This is a metaphor, not a doctrinal treatise. 
This is simply speaking of branches in close proximity to the vine. That they're close. We, of course, think immediately of Judas, someone who verbally professed faith in Christ and even pretended to follow him for almost four years. But beyond Judas, the New Testament is full of warnings not to just be loosely associated with Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, Jesus warned that there would be weeds among the wheat, tares that look like wheat. Earlier in the same chapter, Jesus warned that there would be those who appear to believe but fall away. 1 John 2.19, John describes those who were in the church, appeared to be believers, they were doing all the religious things, but they fell away and went out, quote, making it plain that they are not of us. Hebrews 3 verse 12 issues a warning against those who call themselves brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This isn't loss of salvation. That's not possible because salvation isn't gained by good works. Therefore, it can't be lost by bad works. This is close proximity to Christ. In fact, Jesus himself affirms that the religious person in close proximity to Jesus was never his to begin with. He never belonged to Christ. To those in close proximity to Christ, those who call him Lord, Lord, those who claim to do mighty spiritual works in his name, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He never, it's a Greek word meaning at no time, there wasn't a point in time ever that I knew you. He never knew them. But if you're being pruned, if you're suffering, if you're being disciplined by your father, you know what that means? It means you're in the vine. It means that you're a true branch of the true vine and this should be a cause for joy. Now, let me give you three reasons that this is a cause for joy. First of all, you get the joy of assurance. The joy of assurance. Peter told the suffering believers, reading his very first letter, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this, speaking of trials, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I must be saved because God is nailing me right now. It's a joy of assurance. You also have the joy of perseverance. The joy of perseverance, the free grace camp does not believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. They believe in eternal security, meaning that I can look back on the moment 50 years ago where for three minutes I believed in Jesus and that makes me saved. I don't want to count on that. I don't want to count on the memory of something I may or may not have said when I was eight years old. I want to count on perseverance. The joy of perseverance we see in James chapter one, James famously exhorts us In verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is a Greek word that literally means a remaining underneath, a remaining under. And it's related to the same word translated in John 15, abide in me, remain in me. In other words, suffering means you're abiding You're remaining, you're staying with Christ. By the power of God, you're persevering. And then we have, third, the joy of inheritance. The joy of inheritance. 
How are you qualified to receive from the Lord in the world to come? Hebrews 12, 7 and 8 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So you have the honor of being a son or a daughter of the living God, the younger sibling of Jesus Christ himself. And if you're a son or a daughter, that means that you are, according to Romans eight seventeen, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And you know what the rest of the verse says? provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's the qualification to be an inheritor? It is to suffer. The joy of inheritance. What this means is that your suffering and your discipline is proving that you're in the will, so to speak. Proving that you share in all that Christ has. Peter said that this is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1, 4. It's kept there. Are you joyful in Christ? You should be. You should be. The Father's discipline gives us the joy of assurance, the joy of perseverance, the joy of inheritance. How do you welcome the gardener? How do you not miss the point of your discipline? Are my eyes on Christ? Do I desire to adorn Christ? Am I joyful in Christ? And finally, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. Am I looking more like Christ? Am I looking more like Christ? Second half of verse 2 says, In every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus confirms to the disciples that those who are left, Judas is gone now. Remember, we've been in the upper room for a time and now they're in all likelihood walking toward the Kidron Valley and toward the Garden of Gethsemane, that they are branches who are in the true vine. Before Judas left, before Jesus excused him from the company of the saved, he said to all of them in chapter 13, you are clean, but not every one of you. Once the betrayer is left, now he says, you are clean. But he speaks of the true branches, the ones the Father is pruning as those who bear fruit. Now we've been talking about bearing fruit the whole time, but what is that? What is the spiritual fruit that the believer in Christ is bearing? That which proves that he's abiding with Christ, that he's remaining with Christ. Verse 4. We've established in the last couple of messages that this is not sinless perfection. If, if sinless perfection were the expectation, then pruning isn't necessary, right? But something's happening in your life. Something which demonstrates that you're in Christ. This is what Jesus said. Look down at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, we could list some types of fruit from the New Testament. Let's just create a list here. The first one we'll call the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance, spiritual fruit, is seen in changing sinful ways. It might happen slowly. It might not happen as quickly as you would like, but something is happening. John the Baptist preached, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a genuine desire to to radically alter every area of your life that doesn't conform to Christ. There's the fruit of repentance. The one you're probably most familiar with, the fruit of the Spirit. 
There's the fruit of the Spirit. This is given by Paul in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so there's the fruit of the Spirit. That's probably what we're most familiar with. We could also point out the fruit of satisfaction. The fruit of satisfaction. This is the full and total satisfaction in Christ because you've disowned your idols. You've disowned all of your worldly happiness. In Luke 8, verse 14, Jesus is explaining the parable of the soils. And he explains that the seed of the gospel falling onto the thorny soil gets, quote, choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This doesn't mean that we can't enjoy nice things in the world, but what it does mean is that we don't worship those things. We don't hold them as necessary for happiness. We're satisfied in Christ. Job said that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said that naked he came into the, into the world and naked he'll leave. He doesn't need anything. It's the fruit of satisfaction. We could also speak of the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Paul gives a quick list of spiritual fruit in Philippians 1 verses 9 and 10. He prays that the Philippian church may, be, may abound more and more in love, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, purity, and blamelessness. And then in verse 11, he summarizes all of this as being, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Love, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, purity, blamelessness. We could think of the fruit of evangelism. The fruit of evangelism in the same chapter Paul says from prison that continuing on in this life, he says, quote, means fruitful labor for me. Philippians 1.22, meaning gospel opportunities. This was so often Paul's prayer request. Colossians 4.3, he said, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He asked for prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. He said, finally, brothers, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That's the fruit of evangelism, of declaring your faith to others. And we could list the fruit of church faithfulness. The fruit of church faithfulness. Paul said in Colossians 1.10 that he was praying to the Colossian church that they would be, quote, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Those two fruits happen in the context of the church. You serve the Lord by serving one another and you grow in the knowledge of God by being here, by listening, by learning, by drinking in the truth of Scripture. Can I put it this way? There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't want to be in the intimate fellowship of the body of Christ. That doesn't exist. The Christian longs for the fellowship. The Christian longs for the accountability. He desires to serve. He desires to learn. So that's the fruit that's born in the life of a Christian. It, it permeates, it impacts every area of your life and, and the gardener comes to prune you down so that you can bear more fruit so that you would be quicker to repent so that you would bear more fruit of the Spirit to be more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled to be more satisfied in Christ to bear more fruit of righteousness which is love and knowledge and discernment wisdom, purity and blamelessness to be more prayerful and more effective for the spread of the gospel to be more faithful in your local church serving 
and learning. And when does this process end? Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 4.19. This process continues and continues until Christ is formed in you. Or to put it this way, until you look like the vine. Now I wish we could say that we'll make it in this life, but we won't. But I don't know about you, but I would like to go to heaven close. I'd like to be as close to the vine as I can be. What tremendous benefits the pruning of the Father has in your life. Let me give you three benefits. First, the Word of God more deeply changes you. The Word of God more deeply changes you. Jesus said in verse 3 that these disciples are clean because of the Word He spoke to them. He'll say in John 17, 17 that the word of God is the means by which God sanctifies and changes you and makes you more like Christ. But listen to this though. I I think it's possible a lot of people sit under the preached word. A lot of people even read their Bibles and they're hardly affected at all. They, They sit back as a judge rather than as a recipient. And so what does God do? He takes the hardened ground of those hearts and he plows it with pain. What happens then? The psalmist said in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He goes on to say in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 94 verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. What does discipline do? It makes you teachable. It gets your attention. Grace Bible Church is blessed to have, I believe, the majority of you truly love and cherish the preached word of God. I can see it in your faces. I hear it from your own mouths. And I see it in your changed lives. And the ones who love the word and cherish the word most often are the ones who have suffered under the cutting hand of the gardener. You're the ones who used to sit back and judge. And now after being plowed a few times, you sit up and you listen because the plow has made you soft. There's a second benefit. You're more easily drawn to prayer. You're more easily drawn to prayer. Oh, the Lord can make you pray. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to hear a sermon. All you have to do is be a Christian. Because Psalm 118.6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help from the temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him has reached his ears. As a matter of fact, the, the Hebrew words for distress and crying out come together seven times in the Psalms. This is obvious. When you suffer, you pray. And in fact, you pray like never before. Can I tell you something to do that when you're suffering and you find yourself drawn so very easily to prayer, would you thank the Lord for that? Thank you, Lord, that I didn't have to get up and as a matter of discipline say, I guess I'll go to prayer today. Thank you that I woke up and I was praying immediately. And I praise you for that. You will find your prayers in the times of suffering your sweetest prayers ever. You're more easily drawn to prayer. Thank him for it. And one more benefit, peacefulness, peacefulness. Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We can legitimately translate this, the fruit of peace and righteousness. Yes, discipline is painful, but it has a result. It has an outcome. It, it has a harvest of peace. Because the more you've trusted the Lord through, the more you can trust the Lord for. You're less prone to complaining and more prone to peace and quiet and calm. If you have a problem with complaining, I promise you the Lord can take care of it. He can. So, when you're there and you look down the row and you see the gardener coming, and his blade is out and you hear the shing, 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 and he's sharpening the blade, do not fear the cut of the blade. Do not fear the humbling of having your greenest branches cut away. Do not fear of appearing naked and ashamed before God. Do not fear what the Lord may take away from you and do not fear the trial that the Lord may give to you. Because the book of Job promises, Job 5 says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Submit to the fatherly discipline of the Lord and be proven a disciple of Christ. Amen. Our Father, we praise you as our vine dresser, the one who carries the blade, the one who carries the knife. And you do make cuts and they hurt. And they don't feel good at the moment. But you've given us such comfort, such joy. And it is my prayer for myself and for each person here, Lord, that we would change our perspective on any sort of trial or suffering, that we would welcome it as the gardener's cut, as the gardener's pruning, and that we would keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ to ask ourselves, are we better reflecting the glory of Christ? Are we being made more like him? Is, is the cut working? Am I bearing fruit? And Lord, even to be so brave as to say, bring on the knife, bring on the discipline of the Lord because the, there's such joy and such peace, such assurance of our salvation that comes as a result. And so Lord, it is my earnest prayer on behalf of each of these precious ones here that as they see the gardener coming down the row, as the diagnosis comes, as the relationship is broken, as the person we love is lost to death, as things happen that just don't feel fair, that we could smile and know that you are a God who is sovereign. And when the cuts are made, they will hurt. But what will come after will be so worth it. I pray, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would open ourselves up to the surgeon's hand, to the gardener's hand, and trust you that you know what you're doing. Bless any person here, Lord, who does not have the peace of that assurance, and I would pray also for a man or a woman who does not know Christ. Today, might they count the cost and deem Christ worthy of giving up everything. We pray these things for his sake and in his name. Amen.